Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Okay, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. And we'll review just a little bit from last week. You know, anybody that's jumped on here, that kind of fuzzy, if you're like me, if you sleep in between, then uh, it might be hard to remember what happened yesterday, much less a whole Shabbat ago. So let's review just a little bit. And it, it goes back to the Song of Songs. We're, we're looking for the context of what these women with the alabaster vials are doing in the context of the Song of Songs, because as it turns out, there's lots of bullet points of parallel. It's it's remarkable how close these two accounts are. So right here, we're going to, which our working text has been chapter four of the Song of Songs, but in order to understand the alabaster women, we also have to slide all the way back to the beginning of the Song of Songs, which if you'll remember, is traditionally read during the week of Pesach. It's read during the, the week of Passover. So this is how the song starts out. It says, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is sweeter than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. Therefore, the young women love you. Draw me after you and let's run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. Right. So as, as we put this back into the context of the alabaster women, of course, the, the oils, the pleasing fragrance, that is in common. Uh, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Well, we went back and we looked at a proverb where it says, you know, one who gives the right answer is like one who kisses on the lips. So there's an earthly natural kiss, but there's also the kiss of an appropriate answer. And that, you know, the word there for an appropriate answer is davar, which means word. And we know Yeshua was the living word. So if anybody can give us a kiss on the mouth, it's going to be Yeshua. He is the living word. Your love is sweeter than wine. Therefore, the young women love you. Or if you remember, as Yeshua is reproving Simon the Pharisee, he brings out in his illustrative story to, to try to not just give this woman a kiss of the word back, but also to give a right answer to Shimon or Simon, because Simon says, okay, go ahead and tell me, teacher, go ahead and tell me what you want to tell me. And so Yeshua tells him a parable about the, the two debtors and the one who owed much more was the one who loved, the one who forgave the debt much more. And so again, it was like um, giving Shimon a kiss as well, because now he has the living word. It's like he's saying, okay, Shimon, you know a lot about Adonai, but do you know him? You know a lot about him, but do you know him? And that's what I want to ask people so often when, you know, we can get carried away by information. We can get so carried away with the treasures of the Torah that we're learning all about Yeshua. We're learning all about the Holy One, but do we know Yeshua? Are we failing to proclaim him as our salvation? Uh, because if it's purely knowledge that we're acquiring, purely information that we're acquiring, then eventually we'll become proud. It'll become an abomination in us. And we don't want it to become an abomination in us. 
We want to be kissed with the kisses of his mouth. We want to know him. That's what Yeshua said to those who came to him and said, well, look at all the stuff we did in your name. He says, depart from me. I never knew you. We're not on a kissing basis. You don't understand what a kiss is. It's not to know about me. It's to know me. And so because the young women here in the song, in the, song the idea is if they've been forgiven much, then they love much. And so this alabaster woman goes into the chambers three times. It says, you know, he was reclining at the table. And that's what draws her in. When she hears that he's reclining at the table, she goes into the chambers. And the chorus to this, you know, if if you're singing it as an actual song, which it is, it says, we will rejoice in you and be joyful. We will praise your love more than wine. Rightly, do they love you? So we will rejoice in you and be joyful. That's a key phrase. So just file that away for later. We're going to run across that phrase again in, a def- in another place. We're going to find it in Psalm 40. And then we're going to find it in the Gospels after the resurrection. And again, it's going to go back to one of these alabaster women. And so the bride goes on. She says, I am black and beautiful, you daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Uh, It it looks as though she's a little sunburnt. Um, She's black, she says, but her blackness is beautiful. The idea here is that even though there's some uh, stains of uncleanness, that there has been a, a process of repentance that she has gone through. And so she has turned this pile of sins into repentance, which now it becomes very fragrant. What was stinky just a second before you repented, a big pile of stink. Now it's just a big pile of of perfume in the nostrils of the one who created you because you have repented of those sins. And now he can do something with you. She says, don't stare at me because I'm dark for the sun is tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me caretaker of the vineyards, but I've not taken care of my own vineyard. And then she says, tell me, you whom my soul loves. You see three times here in this close context, it mentions love. The young women love you. Rightly do they love you. You whom my soul loves. And because the the one who's loving in the song is going to be the bride, then as Yeshua is embarking upon his ministry, it makes sense that the the two people who are going to bring the alabaster vials will also be women uh, because they are they're playing out the role of the bride here. She says, "Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you have it lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? In other words, why should I be separated from your people? Why should my sin separate me from your people?" I don't want to just kind of follow you around and be at a distance from your flocks. Uh, Companions are close associates. They are intimates. You know, you have different circles of friends, and this is your intimate circle of friends, like the disciples. Um, Think of Mary also learning at the feet of Yeshua. And Martha complains because Mary's over there. Miriam is sitting at the feet of Yeshua, learning with his companions. And she, you know, like, Lord, rebuke her. Tell her to help me. And Yeshua says, hey, look, she's chosen the better thing. Serving others is a good thing. But Miriam is a spiritual opportunist. When she sees a spiritual opportunity to come into the intimate places 
uh, of the word and to get those kisses of the word. And Miriam's going to get as close as she possibly can. She doesn't want to be beside the flocks of the companions. She wants to be within the flocks of the companions. So again, this is a beautiful passage all on its own. But if we pair it up with what we know of the alabaster women, then the more we read it, the richer it becomes, the more colorful it becomes, right? And so this was the opening. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is sweeter than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name, which remember his name is salvation, Yeshua, is like purified oil. Therefore, the young women love you. And again, the definition of a kiss on the lips, uh, one who gives a right answer, one who gives a devar, kisses the lips. And you know what? Yeshua has offered that same kiss to anyone who's ever been born. Anyone who's ever been born can get that kiss on the lips by Yeshua. They can receive his salvation. They can accept him as the living resurrected word of Adonai. So we want to break down a little bit of Psalm 40. We're not going to do the whole Psalm. It it would still be beneficial if you want to go back later and read the entire Psalm 40. But we're going to read the the latter part of Psalm 40. And then one particular verse we're interested in. uh, Because this seems to be a prophecy in Psalm 40 between Yeshua, who is salvation, and those who are surrounded by troubles, but yet they are seeking Adonai. So it has a, a dual purpose here. We can see Yeshua surrounded by enemies and troubles and under a mountain of sin, which is not his own. It's the mountain of sin that he took upon himself when he died for every human being. And he had to be surrounded by troubles in order to take on that mountain of sin. The other, you know, is that we're all in that same condition. We were all under a pile of sin. We were all surrounded by trouble. So we can both internalize that to ourselves, but then we can also rejoice over the salvation of Yeshua, who took all those sins that buried us, uh, that, that fenced us in with no way out, and say, you know what? Yeshua found the way out. He didn't have to stay under that mountain of sin. He broke out of death. He has the keys to death. So it didn't matter how many of our troubles surrounded him. He knew the way out. Um, There's going to be one verse here, which is of particular interest. It says, he has given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. And you know, that hymn is in a Shabbat Sidur. It's often sung on Shabbat, maybe sung in Hebrew. But that is a beautiful hymn of praise for Shabbat. But let's look from there. Let's drop on down to verse 11 here. It's, we're going to go Psalm 40, verse 11. It says, you, Lord, will not hold your compassion from me. Your mercy um, and your truth will continually watch over me. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My guilty deeds have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head, and my heart has failed me. Be pleased, Lord, to rescue me. Hurry, Lord, to help me. So we can see that Yeshua has compassion on this woman, but we see something in the the second, I, I kind of put them into stanzas for the 
sake of the, the topics we're looking at. If we look at the, the, alab- the first alabaster woman, uh, Miriam appears to have been a righteous woman. You know, we've got kind of the two uh, ends of the spectrum here. In the first alabaster incident, we have a woman who was a sinner. And then in the second alabaster incident, we have a woman who is known for being an extremely righteous woman, which is Miriam. Her brother was the one, Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead. Uh, But with the first one, we can identify this with that first alabaster woman. She says, evils beyond number have surrounded me. My guilty deeds have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. And think about this woman. She's down on her knees, most likely, washing Yeshua's feet with her hair. Well, back then, women tended to have very long hair. It wasn't stylish back then to have um, short hair. So back at that in that day and time, imagine how long her hair was. And with her hair down, she may not be able to see much except her own hair <laughs> as she's washing his feet. It's, it's basically, she's just going to see a bunch of hair. And she says, they are more numerous than the hairs of my head. So her sins, her guilty deeds, she says, they're more numerous than the hairs of my head. And so she's washing Yeshua's feet with her hair. That's all she can see. And that's all she can see is her sin. There's so much sin. It says, her heart has failed me. And then she says, be pleased, Lord, to rescue me. Hurry, Lord, to help me. She's asking for one of those kisses on the lips. She needs a right answer. She believes, I believe, with all her heart, all the heart she has left, because right here it says, there's so many sins, my heart has failed me. I I don't even know how to climb out. But with what's left of, of the courage of her heart, she looks at Yeshua and says, this is salvation. And she says, hurry, help me. And then we have Shimon's little introspection. Well, if he were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is, that she is a sinner. So look at this next stanza. May those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. May those be turned back in dishonor to delight in my hurt. May those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation, your Yeshua, continually say, the Lord be exalted. But I am afflicted and needy. May the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my Savior. Do not delay, my God. So we can see that the woman here is, if this is speaking prophetically, it's, it's not just the voice of Yeshua as he's preparing for his crucifixion. It's the voice of the alabaster woman who knows she's a sinner. And there's nobody there to help her. She says, I need help. You are my help. You are my Yeshua. Do not delay. People are delaying to help her. Clearly, she wants to repent. But how is she getting any help? She's not getting any. All she's getting is judgment. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. Well, guess what? A sinner knows he or she is a sinner. Typically, nowadays, it's not so clear because it's, you know, people don't know the word anymore. They don't know what a sin is. They think it's okay. Um, They think, you know, sins are determined when you wake up in the morning and turn on the internet. Not true. 
The same thing that was a sin since Genesis 1-1 is still a sin. And the same thing that's been obedient since Genesis 1-1 is still an act of obedience. That's the way that works. So she knows she's a sinner. Clearly, she's living in a religious community. But instead of getting a hand out of her sin, because sometimes we can do that, whatever it is that's that's surrounding the sinner, if we can, you know, knock some rocks loose out of that fence and make an avenue of escape for them. But instead, you know, sometimes they know that even if I quit sinning, I'll have to always be ashamed because every time I pass somebody, they'll be looking at me and going, uh-huh, uh-huh, you used to be a sinner, right? It doesn't really matter sometimes what you do next. People don't want you to be anything other than what you were. So, because in a sick sort of way, it makes them feel better. And so she says, I'm afflicted. I'm needy. Lord, be mindful of me. And clearly Yeshua is mindful of her. I mean, how can he not be mindful of her? This this strange woman is is at his feet, washing his feet with her tears. And, uh, and so he does. He has something to say to Shimon about this. And Shimon should know this passage. He should understand it. But sometimes that just takes the right person coming around and reminding us. Sometimes it's through a story. Yeshua liked to tell people stories to help them remember the, the principles of knowing salvation rather than knowing about salvation. Because see, Shimon knew about repentance. He didn't know how to help this woman repent. See, if, if he's intimate, if he knows the word, if he's experienced the word as something more than information, then he knows how to lead her to repentance rather than just continually judge her for being a sinner. And that's important for all of us. That's a lesson for all of us. We can't look at Shimon the Pharisee and say, aha, aha, he didn't get it. No, we have to say about ourselves, how many times could I have kicked some rocks out of the path of a sinner and invoked Yeshua and the fact that he says, and rather than help them out of the sin, I just judge them. So here's the passage that I wanted to put the, the spotlight on. It's um, chapter 16 out of Psalm 40, where it says, May all who search for you be filled with joy and gladness in you. May those who love your salvation repeatedly shout, The Lord is great. The Lord is great. Those who love your Yeshua, may they repeatedly shout, The Lord is great. Yigdal Adonai, Ohave Teshuatacha. That's uh, so it's a beautiful song. I hope you sing it in your congregation. And if you don't, uh, I'll have to remember to do it at a future time when their, their website is back up and running. But Jeremiah Greenberg, may his memory be for blessing, published Shabbat Sidors. And he also had companion CDs where you could learn how to sing the prayers, the Hebrew prayers. And uh, he's the one who taught me this song uh, in Hebrew. It's, it's a wonderful part of a Shabbat service. May those who love your salvation repeatedly shout, the Lord is great. Why? Well, it's all who searched for you. All who searched. This woman was searching for Yeshua. He didn't go to her. She went to him. She found him. When she realized the king was reclining at the table, she searched him out. And she was filled with joy and gladness because she found salvation. All right, now, 
then hold on to all that right there. We're going to need that moving forward. But now we're going to kind of fast forward from chapter one of the Song of Songs to chapter four, where it says, your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilad. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilad. Remember we said that Hebrew word there, the, the verb in modern Hebrew, it means surfing. <laughs> so your hair is like a flock of goats that are surfing down Mount Gilad. <laughs> But that's beautiful hair, by the way. If you've ever seen a flock of goats, if you've ever been in Israel, especially, and you've seen the, the Bedouin shepherds uh, kind of herding their flock of goats down the mountains, you really get that it's it's not only, you know, this beautiful hair in the sunlight, but it's moving because it's a flock and it's a living flock as they they come down the mountain, of course, it gives that, um, at least in the Song of Songs, you can visualize that not only is the, the hair, you know, falling down in a beautiful way, it's as if it's alive. It's like it's moving, maybe not surfing, but you, you get the idea. It's like a kind of like a waterfall. You know, her hair is that beautiful. I don't know if she used the right shampoo or, or what. Right. So that is going to help connect us to the alabaster women, especially the one with the sins more numerous than the hairs of her head. She's turning to salvation. She's heard the good news. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Nobody's brought her any good news up to this point. Finally, she has some good news. He's resurrected a young man from the dead at the gates of the city, and surely he is the one, surely he is salvation, who can take care of these sins that are more numerous than the hairs of her head. And so she touches her hair to his feet. She touches her feet to his gospel, to his good news. And in that act of faith, even before he's crucified, she's piling up her sins on Yeshua, but she knows that he is the king, and he can save her with his unfailing love. Remember, love was the, the topic of that passage in chapter one. <clears throat> and we have another alabaster woman. Remember, it comes right, depending on how you're reading it, but I believe it's six days before the crucifixion, six days before the Passover, when Miriam anoints his, his head and his feet with the perfume from her alabaster box. But this first woman, this anointing appears to have taken place in the Galilee, which is the, the Galil. And she's anointing him really at the beginning of his ministry. So she's anointing his feet. And so the remember the hair, again, just to review, Mount Gilad. If you break apart Gilad, Gil and Ad, what you're going to have then is that uh, the two-letter root there, Gal, as a mound, a hill, or a heap, right? And then ad is from aid, which means witness or testimony. So the, the later alabaster box, immediately Judas goes out and wants to betray Yeshua. He's trying to force him into proclaiming himself as the king. Yeshua is not going to do that at this point. Uh, there's a, to him, there's a clear distinction between a king of this world and his own kingdom. And he says, you know, really not yet the king of this world, but he will be. 
so what's going on here? It's it's a mound, a heap, or a hill of testimony. So the first one, if this is, you know, if her hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilad, with the first alabaster woman, the people in the area, they do see Yeshua as a prophet, except for Shimon the Pharisee. He's kind of on the fence here, like, well, if he were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. But the women, the, the men and women of the lower Galilee at this point really do see Yeshua as something special, as a prophet, perhaps like Elisha, because in that same place where Elisha resurrected the widow's, uh, not the widow's son, the only begotten son of the Shunammite woman, then we have the woman with the alabaster box. She sees something even greater than Elisha. I said, one greater than Moses, one greater than Elijah, one greater than Elisha. Not only can he resurrect the dead, but he can forgive sins and resurrect from the dead. I mean, who in the world wants to be resurrected to their old sins? That doesn't make any sense. But she sees in Yeshua one who can both forgive this multitude of sins and resurrect her from her trespass and her sins. So I think when we look at the psalm and we see a, a context of joy and gladness, where it says, we will rejoice in you and be grateful, I think the tears that, that she's crying, maybe they were sadness, maybe it was fear before she knows how Yeshua is going to re react. And then when she sees that he doesn't push her away or shame her, probably they, they turn to tears of gratefulness and relief. And then it's just like, you know, it's one thing if somebody gives you a compliment to your face, you don't know if they're flattering you or not, or just trying to make you feel good or, you know, get rid of you. But if you overhear someone talking about you, to someone else, and they're bragging on you to someone else, and you overhear it, that is like a triple energy shot. Oh, joy. They really mean it. They wouldn't be passing this on. I mean, somebody like Shimon, who is a scholar in his community, very well, all the Pharisees were respected, by the way, with the common people. Sadducees, not so much. Uh, but the Pharisees in that time, they were the heroes of the common people. They were very well respected. And so he tells this well-respected scholar in her hearing, he brags on her for loving him. And that had to have been tears of joy. It says, we will rejoice in you and be joyful. And in the Hebrew, there's going to be a word there that you're familiar with. It's a nagila, the nismecha bach. We will rejoice in you and be joyful. Well, you've heard Nagila before. Hava, Nagila, Hava, Nagila, Hava, Nagila, Venismecha. Does that sound familiar? Well, it's from right here. We will rejoice in you and be joyful. So Nagila, rejoice, comes from Nagal. And if you shorten it to its two-letter root, it's Gal. Where are they? They're in the Galil. They're in Galilee. What is her hair like? Goats descending from the Mount of Gilad, right? Which is, you can also pronounce it Galed, which goes back to its meaning. If you break it apart, Galed, which means a mound, 
or a mountain of witness. This story is a witness to salvation. This is a testimony to salvation. Venismecha, we will be joyful. And you can trace it all the way back to Genesis 31, 48, where Laban is promising Jacob, like, okay, I'm not going to pursue you anymore. He says, this heap uh, is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, it was named Galed. It's spelled the same, Galed as Gilad. So what is it saying? This is a mound, a heap, a hill, gal of aid, witness. So what is happening here? What's happening with this woman is a mountain of witness to future generations, even, of the salvation of Yeshua. As we can see in its, its original context here, that it symbolized a place where a covenant is made and that no more harm will be done to between these two parties. And then that testimony will just stand there to future generations. It'll just keep testifying to future generations. So that's why this story, in, in one respect, is still being told. The salvation of the king is still being celebrated. We're, we're still having a because of Yeshua's salvation. So let's look at the second incident. Let's look at the second alabaster woman. It says, when Yeshua had finished these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man is to be handed over for crucifixion. He's telling them he's about to die in two days. At that time, the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the courtyard of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to arrest Yeshua covertly and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, Otherwise, a riot might occur among the people. Now, when Yeshua was at Beit Ani, which is the house of the poor or the house of the afflicted. Remember, we, we just read that in the song. When Yeshua was in Beit Ani at the home of Shimon the leper, Shimon the leper. One of my students pointed out that often the cause of leprosy was gossip, evil speaking, evil speaking. And even though Shimon the Pharisee did apparently not say the words out loud. He's thinking to himself, Yeshua is reading his thoughts. We still have words, internal words. I think this is probably someone Yeshua had already healed and because otherwise he couldn't be sitting there having dinner with everybody. But again, with the hair as a symbol, we know that if you've been cleansed from leprosy, you have to have all your hair shaved off, not just to humiliate you, but to humble you to humble you. So Betani, house of the poor, house of the humble. And he's at the home of Shimon, the leper, who if he's cleansed, if he went and showed himself to the priest, then he would go through this ceremony where he would be humbled by having his hair shaved. It says a woman came to him, which we, we find from the gospel of John, that this is Mary. This is Mary Young. A woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very expensive perfume, and she poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. And then we also see in John that she also put it on his feet and began to wash his feet with her hair. And here again, the king is reclining at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? For this perfume could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Yeshua, aware of this, said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a good deed for me. For you always have the poor with you but you do not always have me. 
For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. You know, we're told over and over in scripture how poor Yeshua was, but how the prophecy said that even though he was poor and afflicted, he was going to be buried in a rich man's grave. So that tells you that Yeshua couldn't even afford a grave, a family grave. And so, again, he brings up, you always have the poor. What is he not saying here? Well, he goes on and says, you didn't always have me, but he's saying the poorest person of all is right here in front of you. He is the poorest person of all. He is the most afflicted of all. He says, for when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. How else could he afford the spices for his burial? Unless she poured it out on the, the poorest person who, have ever, who has ever lived. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. And that's what we want to do. We want to replicate these good deeds. Because even though we don't do them to be remembered personally, we do them to honor Yeshua. We do them to honor the king. We want to do the things that are memory worthy, where somebody will remember some thing that we did that was just radical, extravagant faith. That's what we want to be remembered for, honoring the king. So the, the question again, why? And now we're very close. Um, we're two to six days before the Passover. And Yeshua is trying to prepare his disciples for his death, burial, and resurrection, which clearly they're not internalizing the message here. Why alabaster? Well, here's what I, I dug up from what would have been important in the first century when this is occurring. And it, you can source it in Mishnah Pesachim 5.8. And it's, it's, it's telling about the temple um, services during Passover, just like we saw in the story. It says, okay, Passover's coming. Well, the procedure at that time is typically there's two to three groups. Um, they'll, they'll open the temple gates. They'll fill up the courtyard with people there to slaughter their Passover lambs, you know, uh, pass the blood down through the bowls, go through that whole process. And then they're let out. And then they'll let in another group to slaughter their Passover lambs. And typically they would uh, register up to 40 people per lamb. Okay, so even if 40 people are sharing one lamb, that's still a lot of dead lambs. And so sometimes it would take two to three groups to get all the people in there who were going to slaughter their Passover lambs and eat them there in Jerusalem. And so it says when they would slaughter, they would begin to recite the Hallel, which is the Psalms, certain Psalms. And if there were many Passover sacrifices at the time of their slaughtering stretched out until they were completed and still there were many to slaughter, they would return and recite Hallel a second time. It's just like, play it again, Sam, you know, just keep playing it till, till we get all the Passover lambs slaughtered. And if they read it twice and still had not completed the slaughtering of the Passover offerings of that group, they would go back and recite it a third time. And similarly for the second group and the third group. So as these two to three groups are slaughtering their lambs, if Everybody's not done yet, then they just keep singing the, the hymns, the Hallel, all right, from the Psalms. Now, here's the interesting part. Because there was a great amount of blood, they would rinse the courtyard on the Sabbath for the, the canal, and, and they're bringing up 
Like, was it okay to do this on the Shabbat? Was it a violation of Shabbat? And of course, no, it's not because you have a heavier commandment overriding. So it says the courtyard for the Shabbat, um, the Sabbath for the canal of water would go in the courtyard. And when they would want to rinse it, they would stop up the hole, i.e. where the water comes out and the water stretches out over its banks and rinses the entire courtyard for the courtyard was entirely a floor of alabaster. And afterwards they open the hole and the waters come out. So basically they're stopping up a certain section there so that the, the living water that's, that's pumping up into the temple, that it would flood out the entire courtyard. And that courtyard was made of alabaster. So you knew it was a very light color if it's alabaster, it's like marble. And then once they get everything rinsed out, uh, they're going to unstop the hole and the waters can flow normally. So what does that mean? That the floor was of alabaster. Well, where your feet touch on the Temple Mount is going to be alabaster. And why the feet? Well, we go on to another Mishnah, Shabbat 1-1. It says a large chamber in the temple courtyard where they would always start a fire with wood and the Kohanim would warm themselves there since they walk barefoot on the alabaster floor. So they can't wear shoes, but they still have to walk on this cold alabaster. So in the wintertime, when it was cold, um, they would have a fire there and then the priest could warm their feet up, you know, in between uh, jobs. So why does that matter? Again, the floor of the temple and its courtyards is alabaster. Now let's connect this. Isaiah 66, 1. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool for my feet. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? <laughs> That's pretty cool. Isaiah 66, 1. Uh, heaven is his throne and earth is the footstool for his feet. Where then is a house you could build for me? The house, remember, is a euphemism for the temple. So he's referring then to the temple. The implication here is Adonai is a spirit. He doesn't physically rest like human beings do. But if we look at him, we can say this is the reality. If we look at us, we're just the parable. That's all we can ever be. We're in his image. Therefore, we came second. So it's actually the spiritual that is the reality, and the natural is the parable of the reality. So we don't look at our feet and say, we have feet, but you know, he just says he has feet in scripture because he wants to help us understand. Well, he is trying to help us understand, but what we should be understanding is he has real feet. Spiritual feet are real feet. Natural feet are the parable of spiritual feet. His feet are real. His are the reality. Those are the real feet. Ours are just replicas, just replicas. So where do your feet touch the earth? Um, well, if your shoes are off, and that's the whole key, that's why I'm giving us kind of the background of the temple practices, the priests had to go barefoot. So the feet were coming into contact with the alabaster pavement. The pavement is going to be where feet 
of the human being contact the earth, but they're not touching the actual earth. The alabaster pavement is forming this thin veil between the natural realm of the feet and the spiritual realm of the feet. Just like in the natural realm, the alabaster pavement is going to provide a barrier between the dirt, the actual earth, and human feet. So you look at it in the natural or the physical, but then you say, wait a minute, what's the spiritual principle behind this? But when we look at the alabaster pavement, and this is what both women are bringing, their perfume is coming in alabaster vials. So there's an alabaster pavement that's going to form this very thin veil between heaven and earth, between what we see of the physical temple and what we're to understand of the spiritual temple hovering just atop it. And so he's saying that the footstool is where the Holy One's feet touch the earth. It's his lowest place, but our highest place, so to speak. The Temple Mount would be our highest spiritual place on earth, but it's actually his footstool. But if we want to touch him, if we want to be in his kingdom, if we want to experience the king's kingdom on earth, then we would go to the place, and this is why Jerusalem is such a big deal in scripture, over and over and over. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Why will everybody be gathered to Jerusalem? Because this is where the earth, the natural earth, touches the heavenly throne. The natural and the spiritual can meet on the temple mount, in the temple courtyard. So you've got priests here in that day and time. You've got Levitical priests who are ministering basically between the two realms. They're they're helping human beings bring their sacrifices and offerings and praises and so forth to offer them in that smoke going up on the altar. So what is this woman doing? Well, the alabaster would remind us of this pavement of the Temple Mount, that if we want to experience the kingdom, you know, Yeshua's sermons were all about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, because the feet represent the kingdom. It's where the heavenly touches the earthly. And human beings were created to function in both realms. We weren't created to be just natural beings. He didn't make us like animals. He put his spirit in us so that before the fallout of the garden, Adam and Eve could function with ease, whether they were functioning in natural or spiritual realms. And then when sin entered the world, they fell. They fell down a level. So their spiritual priesthood was diminished and the natural world, you know, truly the dust of their feet, uh, life became much harder. But Yeshua came to restore us, to restore us as a kingdom of priests who can minister between two realms. And the Levitical priests, the Kohanim, they helped to picture this encouragement. If you went up to the temple to worship, then just seeing the priests minister there should encourage you that one day, you know, from their standpoint, a Messiah would come who could help restore. And in hindsight, we realize this is something Yeshua has done. He has restored us as a kingdom of priests. And right now we are practicing, we are rehearsing, because it remains to be seen how we will function in that priesthood when he returns, or whether we'll even be qualified. Have we been a, a good and faithful servant? Will, be, will we be able to minister to both realms? 
will we be messengers and, and ministers of his kingdom or not? So in washing Yeshua's feet, the woman with the alabaster vial is acknowledging, just like Song of Songs chapter one said, the king is at the table. That's why it says when she heard that Yeshua was reclining at the table, she's like, the king is here. The king is here. I have to get to his feet because feet represent kingdom. Even in mysticism, the feet represent the kingdom. It's where heaven and earth touch. It's where the feet of the Holy One touch his natural creation. And so we have Yeshua. He is fully human, but he is also in the image of the Father. He is 100% heaven. He is 100% earth. How does that work? I don't know. I'm, I'm sure that might be like on the top 10 questions when we get there. Like, Yeshua, could you explain this to us? You know, how can you be, you know, 100% heaven and 100% earth? How can you be the exact image of the Father and be human? We don't understand that. Could you please, and for those of us who are who are lacking, <laughs> could you please make that clearer? But we have to accept it by faith until then, that he is the exact representation of the Father, but yet he can he can appear to us as a human. And so how can we touch, Adonai says, we can't look at him and live. We can't look at the father and live unless he made a way where we could look at the father and see his exact representation and live, where we could experience him in a physical way even and live. Well, the only way we can touch the father in this kingdom below is to touch Yeshua. That's how you touch the Father. If you've ever wanted to touch the Holy One, but you knew you would die, if you even saw him, much less touch him, how can you do it? Yeshua. Yeshua. So Yeshua was sent to minister in the kingdom, represented by the feet. Uh, Matthew twenty two forty four. it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Under your feet. Remember, your feet represent the kingdom. Well, just like the pavement, the alabaster pavement, you have the spiritual service going on above the pavement, but you have the natural earth below it. So Yeshua is going to rule in this kingdom of two realms, spiritual and natural, as an exact representation of the Father. And he's going to rule. There will be those who rule and reign with him, but the enemies to the word, to the devar, especially to the living devar, they are not going to be able to enter that realm of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount at the time of its restoration because they are going to be, in a sense, beneath the alabaster pavement. So why alabaster? What does it represent? The place where heaven and earth meet, and they meet in Yeshua. He is where they meet. This woman figures this out, and the Torah scholars couldn't figure it out. Oh, if he were a prophet, good grief, mister, come on, you can raise the dead. And so we can look at Yeshua and say, wow, you know, yes, it's in him that these two realms are brought together. It's in him that we rehearse functioning in the kingdom of heaven. We can begin entering into the kingdom of heaven with him even now. When we start obeying his living word, we it doesn't help to know about him. You have to know him. And then if you know more about him, then you should know him in a deeper way. Look at this one, Matthew 28, 8. says, they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy 
and ran to report to his disciples. And behold, Yeshua met them and said, right here, our song, our Shabbat song, our Psalm 40 song, Yeshua met them and said, rejoice, great joy and rejoicing. And they came and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Yeshua said to them, do not be afraid. Go, bring word to my brothers to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Remember, with the Galilee of the nations, it's he's about to send the disciples out to the nations. And that's what it was called, Galilee of the nations. What did they need? Well, it goes back to what is Mount Gilad? What is this a bride descending like a flock of goats from Mount Gilad. Remember, it's a mound of witness. It's a mound of testimony. And so what's happening here is you're about to take this gospel. You're about to take this good news out to the nations. You are going to be my footsteps. Is this not cool? You are his footsteps right now until his footsteps actually appear. You are his footsteps on the mountains. You are the bride with hair like a flock of goats surfing down Mount Gilad. You are surfing through this world with his word, with his debar, and you are giving those kisses on the lips of his word because you know him, not just about him. Didn't mean to preach, but I think I just did. But look at this. They took hold of his feet and worshiped him. What did they do? They said, you know what? If we can grab his feet... We have grabbed what the Father sent us. We have grabbed salvation. He has taken this mountain of sins on the cross. He has broken down the fences of troubles around us, and he is turning us loose to go to those green pastures. We don't have to walk beside the flocks of his companions anymore. We can walk right in the middle of them. Yeshua did that for us. That's what Yeshua did. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.